High Reliability versus High Autonomy, Dryden, Murphy, and Patient Safety. You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. At 12.09 Central Standard Time on March 10, 1989, Air Ontario Flight 1363 took off from Dryden Municipal Airport. Just over a minute later, the aircraft ceased to fly, crashing in a wooded area just beyond the runway and catching fire. Twenty-four people, passengers and crew, were killed. The proximate cause of the disaster was clear enough. The aircraft's wings were heavily contaminated with black ice, wet snow, and could not provide adequate lift. It failed to gain altitude and hit the trees. The accident might have been labeled as a simple case of pilot error. Captain George Morwood's fatal command decision was certainly an error. He should not have attempted to take off under conditions so fraught with risk. But he did, and he was neither inexperienced nor incompetent. Nor, as Mr. Justice Morshansky dryly remarked, was there any evidence that he was suicidal. There had to be more to the story. There was, much more. The Honorable Virgil Moshansky, a justice at the Queen's Bench of Alberta was also a, and also a pilot, was appointed to have a commission of inquiry to examine the entire Canadian aviation system for organizational failures, both latent and active, which might have contributed to the captain's faulty decision. His final report is a landmark document in Canadian aviation. All 191 of its recommendations were accepted. Many other factors lurk behind pilot error. Failure in complex dynamic systems is typically multi-causal. Morwood had been sent into a trap by an inexperienced and unqualified flight dispatcher. He had landed at Dryden to refuel a heavily loaded flight returning from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg. He kept his engines running. If stopped, they could not be restarted. The flight and all its passengers would be stranded and at great company expense until other aircraft could arrive. Air Ontario had, as an economy measure, cancelled plans to provide ground start facilities at Dryden. The onboard auxiliary power unit, which could have restarted the engines, had been out of service for five days. Company policy and profits requiring, required keeping aircraft in the air, and essential repairs could wait. The weather in, in Dryden was foul, cold, and freezing wet snow. But company policy, a policy that Mashransky describes as useless, forbade de-icing while the engines were running. The pilot faced an ugly choice, abort the flight or take your chances. In retrospect, he made the wrong choice. At the time, it must have seemed like the better option. Captain Morwood was not available to give evidence, but a plausible interpretation would be that he expected the wings to be blown clean during the takeoff. The reasons they were not are somewhat technical, but the fact was observable and observed from the passenger compartment and this raises one of the most dramatic aspects of the crash. As the doomed aircraft began its final run towards takeoff, the flight attendants and several passengers felt distinctly uncomfortable about their situation. In addition to two flight attendants, there were among, there were among the passengers two commercial pilots with their families. No one made a, any attempt to bring their concerns to the cockpit. There was also on board an RCMP special constable who did mention this his strong concerns to a, the senior flight attendant. She told him, incorrectly, that the aircraft had automatic de-icers. When he challenged this statement, she shrugged. The junior flight attendant testified that when she had, on previous flights, brought forward concerns, she had simply been told not to worry and her concerns were ignored. But what if the two pilot passengers had spoken up? In any case, it didn't happen.
Complex systems always operate with multiple goals that are inherently contradictory and require trade-offs. Justice Moshansky's report, however, provides an appealing catalog of deliberate management decisions to cut corners on safety. There is an air of Greek tragedy about the interaction of deregulatory zeitgeist with a desperate scramble for corporate profitability, moving inexorably towards the destruction of Air Ontario Flight 1363. Before resolving to travel in future by bus, however, one should recall that air travel was and is one of the safest activities in our society. It is a minus six industry, with an adverse event rate on the order of ten to the power of negative six, that is measured out of a million cases. This does not excuse either the managerial cost-cutting or the palsied regulatory environment that sent 24 people to their deaths, but it stands in some contrast to the healthcare sector, where the adver adverse event rate is on the order of 10 to the power of negative 2. For the numerically challenged, the healthcare rate is 10,000 times larger. The contrast has been noticed. Practices in high-reliability industries may provide models, or at least lessons, for improvement of patient safety in what is clearly a low-reliability sector. Indeed, Moshansky was invited to reprise his summary of the events surrounding the Dryden crash and his, his report, more generally, at a Canadian healthcare safety symposium last year in Calgary. From the other side of, a f of the fence, a writer of the Aviation Safety Letter introduces readers to the term professional courtesy, borrowed from medicine and law, as an explanation for the silence of the lambs in the passenger cabin of Flight 1363, the silence that perhaps cost them their last chance. Hierarchical deference might be a better term, avoiding the economic overtones of professional courtesy. But the point is the same. In a strongly hierarchical workplace offering advice, particularly warnings, to a superior necessarily implies that the superior has failed either to notice or adequately to consider some potentially critical facts. On flight 1363, according to testimony, there were really two crews, not one, and the flight deck crew were not perceived as welcoming advice from the girls who poured the coffee. This hierarchical division is deeply embedded in cultural reality in healthcare as well, and forms part of the backdrop to current calls for the creation of an alternative culture of safety. Safety improvement develop efforts in healthcare often run up against traditional aspects of medicine's culture steep hierarchies, tenuous teamwork, reluctance to acknowledge human fallibility, and a punitive approach to errors. By contrast, work environments committed to improving safety are informed, just, and flexible, inspire individuals to report errors and near misses, and use safety data to learn and inform. These alternative cultures conceive of error in two quite different ways, the person approach and the system approach. The person approach focuses on the unsafe acts, errors and procedural violations of people as arising primarily from aberrant mental processes such as forgetfulness, inattention, poor motivation, carelessness, negligence, and recklessness. Countermeasures include poster campaigns, writing another procedure, disciplinary measures, threat of litigation, retraining, naming, blaming, and shaming. Followers of this approach tend to treat errors as moral issues. The system approach, by contrast, accepts that to err is human. Errors are not seen as consequences rather than causes, having their origins not so much in the perversity of human nature as in upstream systematic factors. Though we cannot change the human condition, we can change the conditions under which humans work. When an adverse event occurs, 
The important issue is not who blundered, but how and why the defenses failed. This is an important part of the second story. Students of the determinants of health and illness may at this point recognize a striking parallel with approaches to health promotion and disease prevention. There is a school of thought that views social differences in health as largely a consequence of individual bad behavior arising from moral failings, a view epitomized by Sattel. Quote, Inferior nutrition, obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug abuse, and reckless sexual behavior. End quote. Human error. Modern research and understanding, however, emphasize instead that the social environments in which people live and work create the conditions from which such behaviors emerge. In short, there was no evidence that Captain Morwood was suicidal. The Dryden tragedy provides a textbook illustration of reason's distinction. Captain Morwood's decision was the consequence not of his own perverse perversity or aberrant me mental processes, but of upstream systematic factors over which he had no control. He was trapped. A verdict of pilot error would have drawn a convenient veil over all those systematic failures, until the next tragedy. McCarthy and Blumenthal offer a collection of case studies to, of efforts to create a culture of safety in particular organizations. These seem to have been relatively successful, with measurable outcomes in terms of reduced adverse events. Flattening hierarchies and improving communications are recurrent themes in these examples, but they can be generalized, and will they last? The traditional aspects of medicine's culture that they point to seem far too deeply rooted, not only in history, but in power relationships and the associated economic structure of North American medicine to be permanently shifted by well-meaning and enthusiastic but superficial efforts to encourage greater teamwork and better communication. Captain Murphy, I think, would have recommended a different approach. Captain Edward A. Murphy was in charge of collecting physiological data from a series of experiments begun in the U.S. Air Force in 1946 to study the effects of the human body of extreme flying conditions. Directed by Captain John Strapp, M.D., these came to focus on the g-forces generated by rapid deceleration. Strap himself was strapped into a rocket sled called, alas, the G-Wiz, that was propelled rapidly down a track into a set of hydraulic brakes. Electrodes attached to various parts of his body recorded the results. The sled runs did not always yield as much data as expected. On one particular occasion, no data at all was recovered. It turned out that what the technicians had wired every single electrode incorrectly this experience and others similar to it gave us Murphy's Law. If there are two or more ways of doing something, and one of them will lead to catastrophe, then someone will do it. The subsequent simplification to, if a thing can go wrong, it will, actually loses Murphy's point. He was not making a sad existential statement about the inherent cussedness of the universe, or a sardonic joke. Rather, he is stating a fundamental principle in safety engineering. The corollary to his law is, engineer the situation so that there is only one way of doing a thing, the right way. Do not rely on the human element to make the correct choice. Humans may choose poorly. But can you do this in such a personalized field as medicine? Well, yes, and American anesthesiologists have led the way. From a combination of inspired professional leadership and fear of malpractice litigation, they have for a number of years taken patient safety very seriously indeed. One strategy they have adopted follows Murphy, the development of engineered safety devices. Require gas hose connectors, for example, 
to be designed so that it is physically impossible to attach the hose to the wrong place. Require manufacturers to design equipment so that the knobs and the on-off switches work in the same way on every machine. In general, standardize the work environment to minimize and, where possible, eliminate recurrent error traps. Technological strategies, however, constitute that only one component of the anesthesiologist's over approach, overall approach to patient safety. Formulation and adoption of standards and guidelines for practice have also been important, as has been the conscious ad adoption of systematic perspective and human factors engineering, systematic and critical review of their own tasks and behavior. There really does appear to have been a cultural shift, in this field at least. The author of the Aviation Safety Letter describes a similar cultural shift. Quote, I'll be the first to admit that it takes a lot of nerve for an off-duty pilot to step out of the passenger mentality and speak out. Fortunately, crew members now understand such advice as totally acceptable and expected, unquote. But only from other pilots? The prospects for a general shift towards a cult culture of safety in medicine, however, may be a good deal less bright. To quote reason again, the person approach remains the dominant tradition in medicine, as elsewhere. From some perspectives, it has much to commend it. Blaming individuals is emotionally more satisfying than targeting institutions. People are, are viewed as free agents capable of choosing between safe and unsafe modes of behavior. If something goes wrong, it seems obvious that an individual or group of individuals must have been responsible. Seeking as far as possible to uncouple a person's unsafe acts from any institutional responsibility is clearly in the interests of managers, is also legally more convenient, at least in Britain. Nevertheless, the person approach has serious shortcomings and is ill-suited to the medical domain. Indeed, continued adherence to this approach is likely to thwart the development of safer healthcare institutions. Sheps and Cardiff characterize healthcare as high reliability seeking industry, and that is clearly not at present high reliability. But how serious are the leaders of that industry about seeking high reliability? Would physicians, in particular, be willing to pay the price in terms of major organizational change? Becoming ultra safe may require healthcare to abandon traditions and autonomy that some professionals erroneously believe that are necessary to make their work effective, profitable, and pleasant. Are their beliefs erroneous, in particular under the headings of profitability and pleasure? As Sheps and Cardiff note, the professional culture of medicine has deep roots in the medieval craft guilds and is remarkably consistent across regions and countries. Medicine is organized and governed the way it is because that's how physicians want it, and they have successfully fought off many efforts by others to change it. Financing is a permanent source of conflict in all countries, precisely because physicians' preferences inevitably collide with broader public objectives of access and cost control. The abandonment of professional autonomy is an essential lesson from high-reliability industries. Related to the reduction or elimination of professional autonomy is the shift from the mindset of the craftsman to that of an equivalent actor. But this is a profession whose members are fiercely individualistic and deeply committed to autonomy. A cynical old economist would bet that faced with the requirements of a serious commitment to high reliability, most clinicians would say, the hell with it. We will not give up our centuries-old and highly profitable traditions just to avoid the occasional adverse event. Symbolic gestures, sure, and the expressions of great concern, but only so long as we stay individually in control. After all, unlike pilots, clinicians do not share the fate of their patients. 
How then to deal with the current concerns? A plausible strategy for deflection might be to conflate the concept of patient safety with the very different concept of quality of care. Then find some ignorant ec economist, there's no shortage, to tell the world that improved quality can be achieved with only more money. The money equals quality equation has a sorry history in health economics now stretching to mo over more than 30 years. Et voila! A potential threat to professional autonomy has been transmuted into a yet another reason why healthcare needs more money. Lead into gold. Too cynical? Maybe. But let's wait and see. Robert Evans is the professor of economics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C. This has been Longwoods Radio. Thanks for listening.